This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, Henry Hang. He's the part of the Center for Molecular Medicine and Genomics at Wayne State University. He's been my guest before, very interesting guy. And now we're joined by uh, Rafe First. Uh, he's a founder, investor. He was part of the World Series of uh, Poker Champions. But we're going to be talking about biological type stuff. So I want to welcome both of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Yeah, if you would, uh, Rafe, since you're brand new, and then we'll ask Henry. Rafe, tell me a little bit about your background and how did you end up working with Henry? Yeah, um, that's a good part of the story. So I was I was not at all uh, interested in biological sciences or medicine or even cancer. I was a computer scientist by training and was in Silicon Valley. Uh, during the 90s internet boom and became an entrepreneur and an investor. And, and I was a poker player, as you, as you mentioned. And I, along with another uh, Silicon Valley poker player, Phil Gordon, got interested in uh, cancer, mostly from a prevention and uh, early detection standpoint. We both became board members of the Prevent Cancer Foundation. And it was on my tenure there on the board that I was introduced to Henry and, and a whole host of cancer researchers who were focused on the evolutionary mechanisms of cancer. And I had a lot of catching up to do and, and I was fascinated. And I just, I, uh, I really gravitated toward Hen- towards Henry because he had some really, I would say, heterodox views at the time, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in contrast to the orthodox views of what cancer is and, and how it progresses and what we might do about it uh, in terms of treatment. And I knew about the urgent need because at the Prevent Cancer Foundation, we were very aware of the billions and billions of dollars that have been spent for decades trying to eradicate cancer and cure cancer. And to no avail. Um, the age-adjusted mortality of cancer has not moved significantly at all um, in the 70 years that we've been keeping these statistics. And we're not really told yeah. this. This is not what the story is. Well, can, can you con- confirm a, a stat that I've heard that is probably the most troubling of all, I think, um, 
that 50% of U.S. men and 33% of U.S. women will get cancer in their lifetimes? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't kept up with the stats. Henry, what do you say? Yeah, correct. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, when I hear that, that that just like, you know, I've had cancer before too, thyroid cancer, you know, thank God it wasn't too bad. But, um, you know, if that stat's anywhere close to accurate, that's completely devastating. That's that's really worrisome. So I just wanted to point that out. Absolutely. You know, hopefully that's accurate. So, uh, No, I was just, just going to point out that, you know, even from my perspective, yes, that is devastating. But also, uh, it seems likely from where I stand, um, and Henry, you can, uh, you can weigh in separately if you agree or not, but uh, by and large, there is a decent chance that the treatments that we're, we're using to try to uh, kill cancer actually are doing more harm than good um, overall. So, okay. uh, yeah. Well, we'll get into the content more in a minute, but Henry, I just wanted you to get the chance to give your a little bit more extended bio, and then I want to ask you guys about your current research. So, Henry, go ahead, please. Sure. So, my uh, research initially is, is study the uh, cancer progression, and especially we, you know, try to find the molecular mechanism, you know, to understand the cancer. But during our research, we actually realized it's not a simply molecular mechanism because there are so many of them, and uh, the highly dynamic make it. It's extremely challenging to predict the disease progression based on the a particular molecular mechanism, which is the main focus in the past 50 years. So we actually realized that we need to use an evolutionary idea to study it. But during this such a process, we actually realized the conventional conceptual aspect of the evolutionary theory, genetic theory, actually had some major, potentially major problems. So that's a story started the, our research. So on one hand, we study cancer. and on the other hand, we use the cancer as a model to try to understand whether or not the concept of evolutionary and the genetic research actually is, a, as we thought, as a correct, but it turns out have some of major uh, problems. So that's the reason we actually team up with different people to try to promote such idea and Reef and other people, you know, that are outside of the field, it seems like they're more open-minded. So that's a link uh, between, uh, you know, different group people to talking about that because they're not closely associated with the field. Maybe people within the field is too near to judge. So that's one of the rational we actually love to uh, team up with different people with different uh, background and the thinking uh, style. Yeah. Okay. So uh, currently, what? What is your research involving? And then there's a paper that recently came out you know, with you two that I want to go into. But tell me what's the latest and greatest in terms of your research. What questions are you both trying to answer? So uh, uh, what we just, uh, you know, step back. We actually, because we study the cancer, use the cancer as a model to study evolution. We realized that some of the uh, basic assumptions in the traditional evolutionary sense seems like it's not working, right? So, for example, one of the key ideas is evolution is driven by accumulation of the small change. You accumulate, accumulate after many, many generations, then you become some totally different system. So that is one of the key thinking from since from Darwin's time. But use cancer as a model, we found maybe this is not the case because 
the small change which mediated by gene mutation is quite different from the big change like mediated by the chromosomal reorganization. So those discoveries really challenge the current cancer research. If that's the case, then we should use a totally different way to study the tumor progression rather than stepwise one gene at a time accumulation become cancer, but they can drastically by reorganize the genome from the cancer. So that actually requires different approach as well as the experiment platform. For example, if we want to... Quick question here. So, you know, people are see, people see pictures of DNA as the double helix, and then, you know, fewer people will see chromosomes. But... Um, to take to go from the picture of a double helix just hanging out there to what a chromosome looks like, what kind of structure has been added to create a? Yeah, and in, and then in between chromosomes, how do they link up together? So that actually is one of the crucial questions because in the past uh, many many decades, since the discovery of the DNA, people always thinking the genetic information is all about how the information from DNA go to RNA, go to protein. Right, so the gene-centric idea is if we know the gene, individual gene, then we actually can know the actually the function of the system. But now we actually realize that, especially use our genome architecture theory, we realize there are two type of basic information. One is parts information, right? Like for example, particular gene responsible for the protein or for the certain regulation. But above that. There is another higher level of information, which you can recall to the system information, which is coding beyond the gene. It is something to coding how the gene interaction can work. So that's what we actually figured out is all about how the gene, the physical relationship with each other on the chromosome. That is a new type of information we call the system information. It turns out that system information is the basis for the cancer evolution, including for the different diseases condition. For example, the neurodegeneration diseases, we think is also an information problem diseases, rather than individual gene, but how the system can handle, can inheritance and create new information to driving the new system. So that's all we actually try to discuss about. Yeah, just to break it down, I guess, more simply, you know, you talked about chromosome rearrangement as part of cancer. But, you know, for the layperson, what does that look like? Like the chromosomes look like little X's and L's, I guess, that are furry, you know, and it's, the DNA is all wrapped up there, et cetera, around histones and all that. But are two chromosomes that are adjacent, are they literally connected to each other? Um, and when they rearrange, what does that look like? Again, just in a real layperson level. What, what do you observe under a microscope that looks different you know, before and after? So, uh, for example, we use one of technology to study the visualization of the whole process. So we can paint each chromosome with one of a particular color, right? So, for example, chromosome one is red, chromosome two is blue. So if they have chromosomal reorganization between chromosome one and the two, then you will see the red and the blue color become chimeric on the chromosome. So that you immediately can visualize, oh, they have part from one, the red color, and the jumping on the chromosome two is the blue color. So the, the 24 chromosome have all different colors. So then you can see when they have a massive 
genome reorganization, then immediately you can see the, all the different chimerical color on the, each of the chromosome. So you know, okay, the chromosome actually had the reorganization. If the chromosome looks like an X, I'm just making this up, you can see that it has certain color patterning, I guess, on a microscope. And when it rearranges, does the whole X break apart? Does the X transfer monolithically and swap positions with other chromosomes? Or <clears throat> do pieces of it change shape? Like what, what do you literally observe that's different physically about them? So basically just the different fragments that reorganize the fragments, right? So, so if I, I, I have the, the metaphor, we can use the building the, you know, the house, you can use the same brick, but then you have, have different arrangement of the, the same brick. Therefore you have different shape of the you know, architecture. So Riff, do you have some of the, you know, the, the more common metaphor you can, you know, cut in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think to tie it together with what Richard, you're asking about, on these visualizations of the chromosomes, you can imagine that one of the legs of the, of the red X uh, gets transposed onto the blue chromosome and, and maybe vice versa or maybe it gets reorganized with parts of other chromosomes. And there's a number of standard categories of chromosomal reorganization, tra transposition, uh, copy number variation, where a copy number variation, uh, aneuploidy, they call it, um, where a chromosome is either uh, has more than the normal two copies within the nucleus, sometimes many more. And so the, I guess that the, the coding regions of those chromosomes, uh, their effects are amplified when you see that. So uh, Henry, are there other examples of chromosomal shuffling, chromosomal chaos that you could highlight? Yeah. So, so for example, the, if we use the, you know, the uh, real species, right? Some of animal, so like the chimpanzee and the human, Chimpanzee have the 48 chromosome, human have 46 chromosome. So two of the chromosomes of chimpanzee they just fusion together and become new chromosome. So if we use a sky, you actually will find the one new formed chromosome that have two colors. So the from two individual chromosomes, the form of one of the chromosome, half is red, half is blue. So that's a visualization on the microscope when you're doing ex experiment. And sky, so, just uh, the terminology sky stands for spectral karyotyping. So that's the, 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 the visualization technology that Henry was referring to. Yeah, but for the, for the, for the cancer chromosomes, then you just say it's totally different color. For example, one chromosome, you have 12, 14 colors on one chromosome. So different region is different color. And we know the different color means they come from other pieces from other chromosomes. So they're just reshuffling this relationship. So the genes still same, but you located on the totally different chromosome and the totally so, surrounded so, by... So if someone has, uh, let's say, liver cancer and you biopsy the liver and you pick up some cancer cells, but also some healthy cells, same cell type, and you do this spectral analysis and you compare them, what do you see? Can you tell which rearrangements occurred and kind of go backwards from A to B, from healthy to unhealthy and see the path that the cell took? Correct. For most of the cancer, they all involve this process. So after you sequence, you always can say, if you read the sequence of paper, they all have the pie chart. They have a different line between different chromosomes. Every time you see the line cross the chromosome, 
that's one quantum translocation. So you can see massive of them, you know. Uh, also, you have the copy number, you know, polyploidy, aneuploidy. In short, just a genomic chaotic change. So that's what we use the term to summarize all the different type of them. Yeah. It's really messed up. Yeah. yeah, and just to highlight that, chaotic in this case doesn't mean completely random, but it definitely does mean it's non-deterministic, meaning the 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 pattern of 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 reshuffling uh, that you'll see varies from cancer to cancer, from patient to patient, from tumor to tumor, and um, and then correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, but when you run experiments with uh, individual cancerous cells, like in a culture in a, in a petri dish, and you sort of rerun the cancer evolutionary process you will see, you won't see the same pattern twice. But what you will see is this progression of increasing diversity and 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 chaos within the structure of the genome that is characteristic of all cancers. Okay. What else can you tell from these rearrangements? So they don't appear to be completely deterministic. Do they, do they you know, if, if you looked at, again, I'm just making this up, you know, healthy liver versus cancerous liver cells, and you look at, a hundred different pairings in a hundred different people. Will you see generally the same rearrangements, or is it like wildly different in each person and in each cell? Like, you know, how is this totally chaotic, or or what, what does it look like? Sure. So initially, actually, some of the blood type of cancer, right? So they have, with some exceptions, some like CML, so some of kinds of leukemia. So the ninety-five percent of the patient. They have similar chromosome translocation. For example, they're called the Philadelphia chromosome, right? That's a chromosome 9 and the 22 translocation. So for that particular diseases, you have a high frequency of recurrent translocation. But for most of the solid tumor, every individual patient, the most different combination of the chromosomal chains. So for a long time, we have one exception and in all the field, people try to find the same success to identify, you know, the same signature of translocation. But it appears for majority of the solid tumor, it's very difficult to find that. Now we know the reason because, uh, you know, as soon as the chromosome translocation become new system, and then the Henry, next step, Henry, just um, before you go into that, because I think it's really important to highlight that you you you, you highlighted the blood cancers, in particular CLL. And these are cancers that respond really well to the treatments that we know about uh, relative to the to solid cancers. Is that true? Yes, because, okay. uh, because in that case, they have a particular molecular target, yeah. right? So, but just for that disease, it responds yeah. very well. But after your treatment for a while, as soon as an additional chromosome start to change, hmm. All this drug is no longer useful. So therefore, when the genome becomes chaotic, the current, the way we are trying to stop them become powerless. So that's one of the important information. Yeah. So just at, at the at the more uh, process level and meta level, some of the, maybe some of the reason why we haven't made more progress overall is that we've become fixated on the relatively deterministic. Uh, ways to treat certain cancers, the, you know, specifically the blood cancers like CLL. Um, but those are not representative of the majority of cancers, uh, which don't respond 
at, well at all to the kinds of treatments, the targeted treatments. And Henry will go into, you know, why that is. But, you know, I, I think your question, Richard, was about what patterns are we seeing? We're not seeing specific molecular targetable patterns. What, we, this, the, what the pattern we're seeing is a meta pattern, the pattern of chaos or massive heterogeneity, massive diversity within the genome itself. And that's what seems to be characteristic of cancer. Uh, and, and that's what Henry has really exposed is this notion of genome chaos, genome chaos itself yeah. being a driver of evolution alongside what, Darwinian evolution. So I'll just pause there. Go ahead. Just a couple more questions about the mechanics of this. If you look at a population of healthy cells, how much variation would there be in the patterning of their chromosomes to establish a baseline? Let's say, again, in a particular tissue where blood's probably the most accessible. You know, have you guys done that to see, again, what the, the baseline looks like before this variation? Sure. We actually did such a study. So is a different individuals that have very slightly different, but the rate is extremely low. Usually, if you check the 100 cell, they have one or two have some change, but this randomly change, right? But for the cancer patient, especially if the, after the drug treatment, they increase dramatically for this, you know, the, the random change rate. So you, you can easily reach the 20, 30, 40% of the cell. They all have different craziness. But those kinds of change is difficult to be identified by the sequence technology because the sequence then you have to get the average of the cell population. So you only can be identified this heterogeneity based on single cell technology because when we study chromosome, we actually study each of the chromosome as a you you know the, the cell as a unit. So we can yeah, but but um even if you do single cell, if there's just a rearrangement not necessarily a reduction or an addition of certain chromosomal segments, it probably wouldn't even appear on sequencing either because it breaks stuff up into fragments so far as I know, you know, longer, short fragments, but um, you may or may not catch nearly all the variation or maybe any of it. So that's why we actually, we try not to fix, you know, focus on one cell. So we actually say how stable the population is. So now we actually realize that if we have certain degree of population, they all have the cell had a problem. Then you had a bigger problem in terms of evolutionary potential. So that's actually become very important. For example, the, in Europe, people actually did the experiment. They studied the chromosome of not just the patient, but the patient's relatives, like brothers, sisters. They don't have cancer. But however, if you compare the how genome stable, they're actually already much more unstable than the normal population group. So, so therefore now we actually realize that when the system is unstable, you have to have all the chromosomal change, but not most of them will lead to the cancer, but just a very tiny proportion of them will become the cancer. So that is extremely difficult for us right now to use molecular signature to, you know, to predict, but that's what we have been working hard to try to push the idea if we can monitor the evolutionary process themselves, then we actually can tell people which situation is more likely will have the success of the cancer. So that's one of the, the idea to really push. And the, um, you asked a very important question. So we actually category different chromosomal change, cell change, we will say how complicated this change is. 
and what's the overall frequency of the population. In fact, we already found if you just check different type of cancer people, different the prostate cancer, breast cancer, they all involve the overall genome instability. So that could be one of the key links to understand why someone have cancer, someone don't, is because when the system under stress become unstable, the evolutionary game started, but only small proportion will finish the game because it's not easy to become cancer cell. Every cell wants to kill you. So you have to be keep changing and after the perfect storm, you become cancer. Yeah. So that's, based based on, on what you guys see, are there any epigenetically created like nucleation sites that would cause this rearrangement? Or again, are there any naturally occurring rearrangements or other features of the chromosomes physically that would predispose them to rearranging in the right or wrong way? I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. That is, a, I mean, again, it's a, it's, it's a very good question. So we know now, we know, first of all, every individual have a certain degree of random chromosome change, right? So for a long time, we was puzzling. We thought, oh, people always thinking, oh, this change is a mistake. You have error of the replication. But now we understand, actually, this random change have its biological meaning is essential for the cellular adaptation, right? So, for example, after you have the virus infection, your genome starts to change because only that way they actually can handle the virus infection, right? So if you have the wound, if you damage the tissue, the chromosome starts to change because in that way they can very effectively repair the damage. So when the liver starts to, you know, the metabolic process, the chromosome have to change because if you do not change, you cannot handle the stress. So you change. So therefore the change of the chromosome, in fact, is a consequence of the cellular adaptation. Why is that? Is it because, you know, we have the germline and the somatic cell separation and every species have the same carrier type, right? But in the, under the different situation, if the cell try to survive under stress, they have to change. So that's the key to be survived. But after change, they have to pay the price. Therefore, the cellular adaptation, the price to pay is change. And some change is diseases. So that's a very simple story right now. You know, it's almost like the one coin, one, two faces of one coin. So do you consider this to be another type of change? So there's genetic change, at least epigenetic change and various types of it. Could this be, you know, karyotype rearrangement? Could that become a new type of change that, you know, happens in many different people and, and creatures and also for many different reasons, maybe not just cancer? Yes. Actually, you mentioned all the change. We actually right now realize it's all about, for example, initially, epigenetic change is most sensitive, right? So you always have that. And the second level is gene, gene change. And the higher level is chromosomal change. Is chromosomal change for that particular cell become point of no return. So they all depends on how, 
how higher the stress is, right? So, so that is actually, you know, uh, very true. So if we do not have this capability of changing the genome, then we, in many situations, we cannot tolerate. So the evolution actually favors the capability of evolution, despite the results is harmful, right? But, but that actually is quite important because the, all the humans continually move forward. But if we do not, the human right now have, you know, the occupy the ecosystem is so diverse, right? So almost, the, you know, the temperature, the geography, everything. So in that case, we actually have more stressful situation. So that's why, you know, we get more, cancer, more of the cancer cases. Maybe to summarize that in a slightly more abstract way, Henry is saying, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, that normal course of life as a, as a human, as a multicellular organism, the change at the chromosomal level, these changes at the chromosomal level help us. They're adaptive. They help us adapt to different environments, and they also help us adapt to uh, stresses like disease from infection, for instance, uh, maybe even emotional stresses. But all of these adaptations at the chromosomal level are, are due to stresses on the system, on the organism, on the human being. And it's great that we have this mechanism in us that allows us to be adaptive to these stresses. However, at a certain point, the stress is, can become overwhelming to the genomic system and initiate this very chaotic process that Henry can talk about. And once that genome chaos happens or begins, it starts driving somatic evolution, evolution of the cells in your body, the population of cells. And this is what we notice is clinically identifiable as cancer. So I'll just pause there. Henry, did I misstate anything? Do you want to clarify that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically we can think that. So therefore... We think the cancer, you know, is kind of a byproducts of the evolutionary process. Is this? A, do you believe that cancer, instead of being random mutation driven, is it a a forced adaptation due to stress that turns into a maladaptation? This is a, a more complicated uh, question because uh, so we actually consider cancer when the karyotype changed, you know, the, the the system information changed, so they become different system. So the cancer almost like a new system emerged within our human body or animal body, for example. So they actually become totally different system now because they have different chromosome composition. You know, they, they, they become new system. So in that case, we even do not agree that cancer cell is simply cheating the same type of cell. They actually is totally different type of cell. So just to maybe clarify or put a, a, a fine point on it, what Henry, sometimes you say you like to say that the that the cancer cells, once they, you know, are showing cancerous properties, actually have become a new species of cell. They're no longer the original human species or cells, the species of cell that is uh, in the human body. They're they're in totally different system or species. Is that true? Yes. So if you consider, you know, how, how much, because this one, people may think, you know, some people think it's controversial, but if you're thinking what the system is, right, is, what is the determine the different species is the genetic, the system, you know, how the system information are different. 
So mm -hmm. therefore, is the fundamentally different. That's that's why we could refer to them as a different cellular species. So that when the new system formed, they actually then we cannot use a human-centric view to judge them. I mean, for the cancer, they are actually beautiful. They are doing a good job to, you know, form the new system, become dominant, right? So, but from human-centric, also this is the evil, all of this. But if you from new system emerge, almost like a human initially, you will actually emerge. We all come from other type of genome, right? So that's the same fair game, and it's still going on, right? So, so yeah. it's difficult to, to, to really judge that part. Well, it also sounds like the definition of speciation is too narrow, because if it's reproductive isolation, but a cell reproduces, quote unquote, by mitosis, there is no reproductive isolation. You know, the progeny are all come from that cell. So there has to be a different definition of what is a species and what is speciation. It seems to be like wo woefully incomplete. Yeah. And I think that maybe the point here, you know, is not to say, you know, that we should really respect and and love what cancer is doing because it's 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 surviving really well but rather our mindset our understanding of what cancer is needs to change because the the metaphor uh, a war for instance has dominated the thinking we have to kill every last cancer cell but if a cancer cell is not what we think it is and in particular, by, kill, by killing individual cancer cells, we actually induce population-level resiliency uh, in, in the form of adaptation. We're actually doing more harm than good. This is what I was alluding to earlier. We induce drug resistance, and we make the cancer's population stronger. So uh, that doesn't suggest what we should do about it or how we should treat it, but it does suggest that we should rethink how we're treating it because we're actually not in line with the reality of what's going on in the body once we introduce cytotoxic treatments. So, so the, back to Richard's viewpoint, I think that's a very interesting one because uh, uh, in the uh, classical evolutionary sense, especially Leo Darwinian, right? So the Leo Darwinian always thinking that you know, the, all the evolution is about the gene frequency change within the population. But if you accumulate more and more, you become a new species. But now from the cancer study, we realized we need to redefine this. So now we have a simple definition. If the you know, chromosomal system change, then that's a new species. And then if just gene frequency change is a chronal expansion, and that is uh, involved some of new feature of the same species. So now we actually realize that the, the macroevolution is all about speciation, and the microevolution is all about the population size, bigger or small, with adaptation. So that is one of the example why we're thinking we need to re, you know, the drastically change the key assumption of the Darwinian evolution, because they're always thinking everything small change, accumulation, different gene, you become finally become a new system. But now we realize when this cancer cell dramatically changes the genome, they already formed the new species. But whether or not some of this will become dominant, it depends on some of the cancer gene to help them and epigenetic mechanism to help them to get more copy. So the other phase is the Darwinian evolutionary phase, right? Just a it, small proportion of the whole story. Yeah. Well, it seems like, I know it sounds like you don't understand it fully yet, but in the future, I could see that a biopsy and histology would be coupled with your analysis, the spectral analysis as well. 
that if you understand, you know, what different spectral changes are associated with in terms of restructuring, that would that would also help to identify what's going on in someone's tumor, for instance, or tissue. Correct, but there is a force from the uh, expectation we also need to change is because uh, the now the new uh, science, right? So before the human genome project, you know, the traditional genomic study, we always hope the individual gene have highly deterministic power to predict. But now we know this is just an illusion because uh, most of the gene we sequenced, right? They can involve all the different traits. It's not like the traditional people thinking you have A gene, you have A traits, B gene, you have B traits. It's not the case. So that's why after the cancer genome sequence project, we have all the gene mutation. We cannot pre- predict clinically very well. And in fact, you know, the chromosomal-based prediction is much better than gene mutation-based mutation. Right? That's a very surprise, but that's the results come from cancer genome sequence project. So, so therefore, in the future, because we need to embrace the uncertainty and the complexity. So therefore, I doubt we ever be able to predict precisely based on the pattern of the chromosomal change. Those only apply for some exception, like CML or some blood cancer type, we can predict. But for overview, the science in the future, we have to accept it, the limitation of the predictability, right, for prediction. Because the new science tells us, like the chaos theory tells us, the initial condition, whenever it's continually changing, you just cannot predict. So that's maybe the human fate. We have to change our anticipation about the science. And after that, we actually more comfortable to accept, you know, the certain degree of uncertainty. Just to piggyback on that, because I know this is something that, that you've highlighted in, in other uh, papers and interviews, Henry, that because evolution seems to be not just a Darwinian stepwise uh, small accumulation of changes process, natural selection, not just the Darwinian natural selection, but also this genome chaos phase. Henry has described it as a punctuated evolutionary model, which is analogous to the punctuated equilibrium model of organismal evolution that uh, Gould and Eldridge proposed back in the 60s and 70s. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Because cancer progression is this also this two-phased process, there are things that might work uh, in one phase that might do damage in the other phase and maybe vice versa. So Henry, do you want to just expand on that and make it a little bit clearer? Sure. So the actually the the, the information management is this a new topic we actually uh, also focus on because for a long time in the field, the people always thinking how to figure out the information flow from DNA, from gene to protein to phenotype. But now the genome chaos process themselves is an effective system to create new system information, to create new species. So all of this dynamic together make the treatment become extremely challenging. For example, I mean, it's very good to kill the cancer cell, right? But if with too much power, you actually create new species that no longer can be killed, right? So we actually create the monster by our treatment, right? Another thing is for the immunosystem, right? Immunosystem is very good. They actually kill cancer cells. 
but somehow this cancer cell that plays a trick, they actually recruiting immuno cell to help cancer cell to fight with the normal cell, right? <laughs> so that actually is, is quite uh, you know the striking that they have all these tricks and because maybe it's just evolutionary with the help of the evolution process, so they can change to the short-term benefit to long-term harmful. So now we actually can reverse the game. We can lose the fight of the short-term and just focus on the long-term system stability. Even though the cancer is there, you know, we actually can tolerate a little easier. As long as they're not crazily growing, we actually use a moderate treatment to constrain the system and therefore maybe have a better outcome. So those questions yeah. we need... We need a study. We need, a, you know, more people discuss this issue. One more thing, and it's going back into the technical side of things. Um, this may be just helpful to you. I, just as a reminder, I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister. They were looking at the um, tumor, uh, pancreatic tumors, and they, they discovered that each one had a localized different microbiome. So the tumors had their own microbiome versus healthy cells in the pancreas. So let's say there is no real patterning to this, you know, genome chaos that you guys have discovered. Perhaps you could look at the localized microbiome around a tumor and infer from the changes in the microbiome versus healthy tissue, what new metabolites are being produced by the cell or what different metabolites that cell in particular needs because it has attracted different microbes around it. So just as an idea. Sure, sure. So the, the actually, the, we last wrote a paper to talking about the evolutionary mechanism of cancer, right? So we, you almost can link with unlimited, like the micro environment, you know, the virus domination, even nutrition, even family care, all of this, they all contributed to the complex system. But the problem is when they have so many and you cannot identify most dominant one. So when they're doing experiments, if you only focus on microbiota, you can get a very likely story out. But if you study human, then they eat different food, live in totally different places. You use one particular way to target a specific microbiota is no longer work. That's a very, you know, it's a very, you know, uh, puzzling, but it's a true fact. So for example, for all this cancer gene in animal model, they all prove it's working. If you stop them, everything's okay. For example, the, for a long time, long time ago, when people use uh, stop the blood supply, so the tumor quickly dead in the mouse, 100% beautiful story. But when to the, apply for the patient, the large proportion of patients, when you use the same way to you know, stop the supply of the nutrition, the tumor more aggressively adopt some other way. So the people become very, very harmed by such an approach. So now we know you do an experimental idea. If we create a linear model, we always can prove many, many scientific power about the treatment. But when you put additional variable, it's no longer working. So that is a challenge for the complex science to the traditional reductionism challenge because we always can figure out something and working very well, but not working in the real world. Only working well in the experimental condition. So that actually right. is one of the very important issues we need to discuss in the future. Yeah. Yeah, we're only working well on mice or you know, on organoids or whatever it may be. Yeah, it makes sense. Yes. It's very complicated. 
Yes, so, so that's exactly the case. I talked to some people that study the microbiota. I said, what's the challenge? It's a challenge is every time we use a human, it's no longer work. But the mice, yeah. everything is beautiful. There's, a, there's an expression, I don't know who, 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 who did it, that we can cure any cancer as long as it's in a mouse. That's true. Yeah. I, I just want to clear up a point because a couple of times, Richard, you've uh, referred to our work. I want to just be really clear. The vast majority of the stuff we're talking about has been Henry's, Henry's work over the past 40 years. I'm largely a fan and a curious uh, layman like yourself, and I ask, uh, I ask questions. And uh, the reason I'm here is, is really because I've, you know, I've been just so astounded and impressed by the conceptual as well as you know, laboratory results that, that Henry has come up with over his career that I feel like it's an important message that's not getting out there. And you know, people are dying as a result, and we're wasting many, many billions of dollars a year on on approaches that you know Henry and others have proven over and again are are not working and and will not work because they're just the wrong model it's the wrong theory of what cancer is and frankly the wrong theory or i say the inc- an incomplete theory of what evolution is new new ideas are attacked by the current scientific immune system just like cancer is so it's, absolutely uh, I understand absolutely well, very good. Both of you, thanks so much for coming. I think it's been a great call. For listeners, uh, where can they find the new paper that came out and where can they find out more about both of you? Yeah, Henry, um, you know, why don't, why don't you suggest where? Yeah, I, you know, the few years ago, we, I wrote the uh, Genome Chaos, the book, and hopefully we are going to have a new edition uh, this year uh, if, if everything's smooth. So the, also they can, you know, simply check the, you know, the Genome Chaos or this term and the you know, the uh, information creation, so so they can get the information from our uh, recent works. Yeah. Okay, and the last item, I have a book coming out about cancer. Should be about a week or two on Amazon, and Henry is a uh, one of the co-authors in it. So for anyone listening, if you also want to see some of Henry's thoughts and answers to some of my questions that we did a while back, um, that'll be on Amazon. Uh, it's called Finding Genius, Understanding Cancer. Again, not to take away from Henry's work, because he's the one that's been the workhorse for 40 years, not me. I just wanted to mention that. So again, in passing, thank you both for coming and uh, it's been a great call. Thank you, you, Richard. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.